Allstate wants to remind fans that mayhem is everywhere, like at your pregame barbecue. While you prep your meats, that grease trap you forgot to empty is prepping to smoke your porch, garage, and the car inside. And without the right home and auto insurance coverage, the cost to repair this could eat up your savings. So bundle home and auto with Allstate to save and get protected from mayhem like this. Bundled savings variant are not available in every state. Coverage is subject to policy terms and conditions. We are welcoming a new show to iHeart and the DraftKings YouTube channel. It is called Point Game with John Wall and CJ Toledano. It's an insider's look at the NBA and the culture surrounding the league. Every week, the five-time All-Star and the number one pick in the 2010 NBA draft, John Wall will give his unique perspective on the hottest topics in the league and tell the best behind-the-scenes stories from his time in the NBA. So check out Point Game with John Wall and CJ Toledano on the iHeartRadio app, the DraftKings YouTube channel, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Kevin Hart here. This basketball season, Chase Freedom Unlimited is helping me cash back on everything, even the sound system that auto-tunes the game. Curry from way downtown. Defense. Will the owner of a red sedan please visit guest services? Bet you've never heard cash back and sound like that. Cash back like a pro with Chase Freedom Unlimited. Chase, make more of what's yours. Restrictions and limitations apply. Cards are issued by J.P. Morgan Chase Bank and a member FDIC. The Volume. Lakers Tonight is presented by FanDuel Sportsbook. There's no better place to make every moment more than with FanDuel. You get great odds in markets for the NBA, NHL, college, and so much more. It's America's number one sportsbook. It's super easy to use. Plus, you can combine multiple bets from the same game into a same-game parlay. If you are new, just download the FanDuel Sportsbook app to get started now. Sign up with promo code JasonT so they know I sent you. 21 plus and present in Arizona, Colorado, Connecticut, Indiana, Louisiana, permitted parishes only, Michigan, New Jersey, New York, Tennessee, Virginia, or West Virginia. First online real money wager only. Refund issued as non-withdrawable site credit that expires in 14 days. Restrictions apply. See terms at sportsbook.fanduel.com. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP or text NEXT STEP to 53342 in Arizona. 1-888-789-7777 or visit ccpg.org slash chat in Connecticut. 1-800-GAMBLER or visit fanduel.com slash RG in Colorado, Indiana, New Jersey, and Virginia. 1-877-770-STOP in Louisiana. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY to 467-369 in New York. In Tennessee Redline, dial 1-800-889-9789 in Tennessee. Visit www. 1-800-GAMBLER.NET in West Virginia. All right, welcome to Hoops Tonight, presented by FanDuel here at The Volume. I am Jason Timp. Happy Sunday, everybody. I hope you all had a great weekend. What an incredible first weekend of NBA playoff basketball. 
somewhat chalk in a lot of different ways. Home team is going to end up winning, assuming that the Phoenix Suns close the deal here, which I obviously expect them to do. The home team won six out of the eight games. Um, the favorite won seven out of the eight games because the Jazz were expected to beat the Mavericks without Luka Doncic. But at the same time, we had a handful of really exciting games. The series clearly appeared to be more competitive than we thought on, on a bunch of fronts. And we learn a lot. The devil's in the details in these NBA playoff series. Is they're like chess matches. It's more about what you can learn from game one than it is about the outcomes. The outcomes do matter. But as the series progresses, as you've seen so many times over the years, a lot can change over the course of the last few games if a team figures out something and the other team can't match that. We're going to break down at some capacity every single series that played out this weekend. We are going to start with the Celtics and Nets. And then after that, we're going to bring my guy Carson on. We're going to play some games. We're going to talk about some playoff adjustments. And then we're also going to get into a little bit of drama with this Kyrie Irving thing having to do with fans, which is something that's been a very common refrain from NBA players over the course of the last couple of years. And I kind of disagree with their approach there. So I'm going to give my two cents on that. But let's start with the Celtics and the Nets. Obviously, the most exciting game of the weekend easily the most interesting series of the first round. I had this one going seven to the Brooklyn Nets. I looked at this as on the when the Nets were on offense, this is one of the best offenses in the league versus one of the best defenses in the league. And then on the defensive end of the floor, I saw it as a pretty average to good offense with for the for the Celtics against an average to good defense for the Nets. And so I saw it as very evenly matched and I thought it would come down to the stars. And that's why I was going to give the edge to Kevin Durant. Uh, round one was super interesting on a bunch of different levels. Kevin Durant had a really rough night. I want to start with the end of the game because that was obviously the most exciting part. So Kyrie has this incredible flurry vintage Kyrie like he like he's with the Cavs in 2017 or in 2016 where he just starts making impossible shot after impossible shot the Nets get a little bit of a lead the Celtics battle it back to tie it at 111 then Kyrie makes another massive step back three over Marcus Smart and then the Celtics stole the game on the last two possessions of the game Jalen Brown beats Bruce Brown to the basket for a really nice layup they go down the other end, double-team Kyrie Irving on the wing, works around to uh, Kevin Durant. He takes an impossible turnaround fadeaway three that obviously with Kevin Durant, you're always just holding your breath thinking it might go in. It doesn't. Eight seconds left, no timeout. Here comes this kind of chaotic possession. Bruce Brown and Nick Claxton both jump out of their shoes and Marcus Smart on the three-point line, which I thought was a really confusing decision. Those last possessions are always really chaotic. Marcus Smart patiently hit, I think he had already attempted nine threes in the game. Instead of jacking up a silly shot, put the ball on the floor, made a read. He saw Tatum kind of cut right to that left block. On the cut, Kyrie reached, and as a post player, you're trained. When you, Whenever you work on post moves, you feel where the defender is on one of your shoulders. If he's on your left shoulder, you want to spin to the right. If he's on your right shoulder, you want to spin to the left. Tatum felt that Kyrie was there, immediately pirouetted on the catch and laid it in at the buzzer. Just an incredibly savvy play on a bunch of different fronts. Jalen Brown attacking in transition there, not forcing the action and kicking it out to the wide-open Marcus Smart. Marcus Smart not forcing the shot, and then Jason Tatum making that incredible play, pirouetting around Kyrie Irving, literally stealing victory from 
the jaws of defeat because that was an unbelievable performance from Brooklyn. They played well enough to win that game, just a handful of plays at the end. Swing it. I always talk about how playoff series are a lot closer than people realize, even when you look at series totals, right? Like you look at a a 4-1 series, you might call it a gentleman's sweep, but usually you point to two or three games that are really, really close. I talked about this with the Bucs and the Suns last year. The Bucs won four straight games to win that series, right? So you think, oh, Bucs dominant, six-game victory, they've solved the Suns, and they did on a lot of different levels, but there were two plays in two games in that series that swung it. There was the play where Devin Booker Booker was working on P.J. Tucker into the middle of the lane and didn't see Drew Holiday coming. Drew Holiday took the ball away from him and threw the lob to Giannis for the dunk. That was a bang-bang play that swung that game. And then later in the series, there was that infamous play where Devin Booker's running the pick-and-roll with DeAndre Ayton, and Giannis kind of stunts up at Booker, and Booker throws the lob pass, and Giannis turns around and makes one of the all-time great defensive plays to snuff that out. Those are two plays that may or may not have swung the games that may or may not have swung the series. In a seven-game series, the best team usually wins, and you are going to give a team a certain amount of margin for error to make mistakes when you have seven games, but there are always a handful of moments that can swing the series one way or another. I'm still leaning towards Brooklyn. I'll explain why as we get a little bit more into the details here, but... If Boston ends up winning this series in, you know, a tough game five at home or a tough game six on the road in Brooklyn, you're going to think back to this one because this is a game that you very well could have won. You controlled on a bunch of different levels and you botched with just a handful of defensive breakdowns at the end of the game and some really good defense from Boston. And so those are always the little moments that you hope you can overcome. But man, this was a game Brooklyn should have won. So I want to look at it on a couple of different levels. Let's start with the Nets on offense. So a lot of people were pessimistic about Brooklyn's offense coming into this because some of the big numbers coming into this, looking at the regular season were flawed because you got Kevin Durant out for a really long time. You had James Harden straight up like shaving points because he was trying to get traded. Yeah, Kyrie not playing in home games. So a bunch of the metrics were really off. A lot of people were concerned about the way they run their offense. They don't run a ton of actions. They do some off-ball stuff with Kevin Durant to get him catching on the move, but it's a lot of isolation. It's a lot of your turn, my turn. It's a lot of high pick and roll. It's a lot of, uh, it's kind of like the Lakers. It's more of like a brute force offense of our talent as opposed to a very scheme-oriented offense. So between the metrics and that, you had a lot of people saying, I don't know if Brooklyn can score against Boston, but you have to look past that. You have to look at the specifics of the way the Boston or the Brooklyn offense has worked this year. With Kyrie and Kevin Durant on the floor this season, they've scored almost 123 points per 100 possessions. They were one of the best offenses in the league with the two of them on the floor. And yes, they don't run a traditional offense, but they don't need to because Kevin Durant and Kyrie Irving are comfortable being uncomfortable. They averaged... Tonight, if you look at their offensive rating specifically against Boston in this game, they scored 117.5 points per 100 possessions. That's an awesome number. That's an incredible number against a very, very, very good Boston Celtics defense. One of the best defenses we've seen at home. They were able to score. That's a very encouraging sign for the Nets, especially since KD didn't play particularly well. But I want to start with Kyrie because he played amazing. So if you guys remember yesterday, I opened the show with a little bit of a rant talking about just how difficult playoff basketball is. We talk a lot about how the NBA regular season and the NBA playoffs are so different and why I think that needs to be remembered 
when we're having conversations about players because they are so different and it, a certain type of player can have a certain amount of success in a regular season environment and then struggle in a postseason environment. We're going to talk about this later in the show about DeMar DeRozan. For whatever reason, he struggles getting to the same looks that he gets in the regular season when he gets to the playoff, uh, when he gets to the playoffs. It's been an issue through his entire career. For whatever reason, he struggles in that setting. And it's because the defensive intensity obviously steps up. There's a, there's a, there's, if, if there's way higher stakes that's going to bring out more defensive effort but it goes even further than that it's the scheming it's the extensive game planning it's every coaching staff is sitting down saying okay we're playing this team we want to make sure they do what they don't want to do on offense and so when guys go into a series and try to play the way they always play they're always kind of hitting the mouth I mean you even saw it a little bit with Kevin Durant tonight although Kevin Durant this is the random exception to the rule he is probably going to bounce back because he always does but there are certain players that never can kind of get over that that lump the defensive intensity the amount of physicality that the refs allow and the amount of scouting that go, that takes place makes scoring the basketball extremely difficult so there are two kinds of players that succeed in these environments absolute brute force monsters think lebron and Giannis. okay guys where it's like oh we're we're having a fist fight here okay well i'm just gonna run you over and i'm gonna thrive in this environment if we want to have a fist fight for seven games i'm winning that okay those kind of guys are gonna thrive in that environment and then guys who thrive making tough shots if within all this scouting and with all this defensive intensity, all this length and athleticism, all of this physicality, if all that exists for you on the floor is tough shots, who are the guys that are going to thrive in that environment? Guys who thrive making tough shots. And you saw that with Kyrie tonight. Unbelievable vintage shot-making performance. It's funny because I'm a big believer in building isolation moves off of the mirror images of each other so that you're always a threat going both ways. On the big shot he made for 114, he's got the ball in his right hand, and you're thinking 2016 NBA Finals, hard in and out dribble, step back to his right, pull up. You're thinking that shot, right? Nope. Comes back to the left, in and out with his left hand. and steps back to the left. Marcus Smart was sitting on that right-handed step back for Kyrie, because that's his go-to move in those situations, but too bad. Kyrie's got the mirror image down too, got separation on Marcus Smart and knocked down the shot. A lot of people are going to be discouraged about the way that Kyrie Irving played because it was wasted, right? And I kind of go the other way on that because Kevin Durant really struggled. And I tend to think that he's probably not going to struggle as this series progresses. It reminded me a lot of the early like kind of the of like game three and game four area of the Milwaukee Bucks series last year, uh, where Kevin Durant was struggling with getting mauled off the ball. So we were talking earlier about the two different guys that succeed in playoff environments, guys who thrive in physicality, so LeBron and Giannis, or guys who are incredibly high-skilled, difficult shot makers, right? And one of the things that the Nets did tonight that I disagreed with, and it's going to be one of my biggest adjustments for the Nets as they move forward in the series, is they used Kevin Durant a lot off the ball, which is something he's done a lot this year. I did a whole video about it, how that's, Kev that's one of the secrets to the way Kevin Durant generates offense. He works hard for easy shots. So instead of just getting into his dribble combinations and making stuff, stuff happen in isolation, he'll kind of work you into the middle and wait for a pin down screen and he'll push you into the screen. He'll come flying off and he'll make a catch and shoot 17 footer. 
He buffered. That's how he gets so efficient. All of the difficult shot making in tough isolation situations is buffered by these easy shots that he works for off the ball. But Boston, and this is special credit to Jason Tatum and Grant Williams. They were the two guys that I thought did the best job in this specific area. Every time KD had the ball or didn't have the ball and was off the ball, they're hugging him. They're grabbing him. They're holding him. Kind of reminded me of what the Cavs and the Thunder did to Steph Curry back in 2016. Like, hey, when this guy gets the ball, there's nothing we can do with him, but we can rough him up and hope to wear him out. And I thought even when Kevin Durant got to the shots that he wants, typically he struggled to knock them down because fatigue is always going to play a role in those types of situations. Everyone always talks about like, oh, we're just not making our shots tonight or, oh, look at us. We're shooting really well tonight. Usually those two outcomes are tied to the defense. When a defense wears you out with physicality and takes away all your easy opportunities, even the ones you do get usually come when you're fatigued. And you're like, oh my gosh, I can't believe I'm open. Guess I'll raise up and shoot here. But you're uncomfortable. You're out of rhythm because you haven't gotten a lot of easy shots in the game and you miss them. And so in that situation, like having Kevin Durant play off ball so often where he can be grabbed and held and roughed up. Think about how many times you saw Kevin Durant get knocked to the floor tonight, even on his dribble drives. They were just physically beating the shit out of Kevin Durant tonight. You've got to find a way to get him out of those situations, even if it's not for the sake of the action you're running, just to save him the wear and tear. And so one of my biggest adjustments for the Nets moving forward is more Durant bringing the ball up the floor so that he avoids some of that off-ball contact. The refs are always going to let a lot more go off the ball as guys are jockeying for position than they are on the ball. That's where you're going to get the ticky-tack hand checks and shoves and things along those lines. And so more Durant off the ball, Take advantage of the over-aggressive defense. Like if Grant Williams or Jason Tatum is picking up KD at half court, pass it to somebody at the high post uh, like Nick Claxton and cut off of him. Just classic give and go. Anything to take advantage of the over-aggressive nature of the Celtics defense. So Kyrie wasted a good performance. That sucks. I get it. But you've got Kevin Durant. He shot, had more shots than he had points tonight, which is almost never happens. This is one of the most efficient scores in the history of the NBA. Kevin Durant's going to figure out how to have a big offensive impact on this series. And even with Kevin Durant having that nightmare performance, the Nets scored 117.5 points per 100 possessions in this game. So they've shown that they can score on Boston's defense. And that is a huge indicator moving forward in this series because I think things are going to get easier and easier for them on that front as Kevin Durant gets going. Moving over to the Celtics on offense. Tatum obviously was great. I don't want to uh, dwell on him too long because I have a specific star of the game for the Celtics that I want to hit on. But I thought Tatum played a really, really well-rounded superstar type of game. He was phenomenal on defense. We just talked about how he was working hard to be physical with Kevin Durant off the ball, using his length to bother him on the ball. They did a great job he, he did a great job defensively. On offense, he wasn't forcing things. He had a good, efficient game. He was absorbing the double teams when they came and, were, and was making easy reads. Really, really well-played game from Jason Tatum. My one concern with him, and this is something that's been kind of flaring up over the course of the last couple of months, the Nets did what every team's been doing with Tatum. Hard denial every time he's off the ball, meaning the defender is literally not allowing him to catch. And then on every action in isolation, they're double teaming him. So they've got to find some ways to work around that. 
This is kind of the opposite of the Kevin Durant thing. Have somebody else bring the ball up the floor. Try to get Jason Tatum the ball in specific spots where it's hard to double team, like the elbow, and where he can catch and go quickly before the double team gets there. Have run the action so that the side is cleared so he can catch and rip through, or uh, get him in a switch on to one of the smaller players like Seth Curry where he can catch and just quick catch and turn and face and maybe jab, step, jump shot, something along those lines. Find a way to get Tatum involved in the offense in the fourth quarter. Moving on to Jalen Brown. I thought he was the star of this fourth quarter. He had nine points in the last seven minutes when everything was collapsing for Boston, when the Nets were going on that run, and when nothing was working, there was one thing that was working, and it was Jalen Brown putting his head down and going to the rim. Just like I was talking about earlier, you either have to thrive in the physicality or you have to be so incredibly skilled that you can make incredibly difficult jump shots. Jalen Brown's not your incredibly difficult jump shot guy, but what he is is he's big and he's strong and he has an incredible first step. And even a good athlete like Bruce Brown, who was on him a lot there at the end of the game, he can beat him to the basket. And there were a handful of pivotal possessions where Jalen Brown just beat Nets players to the basket. The Nets played really good defense in this game for the most part, but they're sloppy in some of the details. They were bad at helping on Jalen Brown. Jalen Brown is not a great passer. The Nets have to do a better job of making Jalen Brown pass out of those drives. Huge possession of the game. Kyrie Irving makes a step back three to make it 114-111. Jalen Brown went right down and scored at the rim. Take any Take any jump shot out of the equation. Take any make or miss out of the equation. Put your head down and go to the rim and make a play. Huge play from Jalen Brown. He didn't make a single jump shot all game until late fourth, and he made a huge three on the right wing that got them back in the game. I thought Jalen Brown was the unsung hero of this game. He also did a great job in help defense. He had a key block on Kevin Durant late in the game. He was flying around. Awesome game from Jalen Brown. One other note on the Celtics offense. I talked a lot about how because of the way the Nets play, they're they're going to trap and double a lot outside. So you're going to have guys making plays out of the short roll, guys like uh, Bruce Brown or even uh, uh, Nick Claxton from time to time just kind of rolling to that short roll right around the free throw line. But the Nets always collapse there because they have great rim protectors and there's all these wide open corner threes available. And when they got them, I, I, the NBA hasn't updated the tracking data yet, so this isn't 100% accurate, but per the track or per the shot chart, the Celtics went one for nine on corner threes. That's something they've got to, they've got to shoot more of them, and they have to be proficient on them because that's the only way that you can make the Nets pay for sending two bodies at Tatum and collapsing at the guys that are rolling to the basket off of those actions. So those are little adjustments for both teams. The Celtics can play better, particularly at the three-point line. They've got to figure out how to get Tatum the ball in better spots on the floor where he can't get doubled. For the Nets, you got to get Durant out of these off-ball situations where he's getting roughed up. Figure out a way to save the wear and tear. And then last but not least for the Nets, they gave up 14 offensive rebounds tonight. Those are just little details. Got to box your man out. We're going to talk about this a lot for a bunch of the teams. Those are little effort and focus things that you can improve on as the series goes along. Really, really excited about this series as it progresses. I thought this was a blown opportunity for the Nets, but they're still very much in it. If you're looking for that silver lining, the Boston Celtics defense is the best defense in the NBA, and you had no problem scoring on them, even in the crunch time moments of the game. I am still bullish on the Nets to win this series in seven games. Hey, Hoops fans, don't just watch all the NBA playoffs action. Be a part of it with FanDuel, an official partner of the NBA. 
Right now, all new customers get a risk-free first bet up to $1,000. Just place any bet on the NBA playoffs, and if you don't win, you'll get up to 1000 bucks back in site credit. I love the FanDuel app because it's safe and easy to use, plus you get your winnings fast. My favorite first-round bets, I think the Nets are going to beat the Celtics in seven games, and I think the Raptors are going to upset the Sixers in six games. Download FanDuel, America's number one sportsbook app, today using promo code Jason T and place your risk-free first bet for a chance to take home a W on basketball's biggest stage. Remember to use promo code Jason T for this amazing offer. We're going to hit on the other three games of the day by checking in with our very own coach Jason. So can I ask you about some adjustments that you would make in each of these games, given how game one went, we're going to start with Hawks heat, which Miami just dominated 115 to 91. So given that result, what would coach Jason tell the Hawks to switch up and fix going forward. <laughs> they got to play a little bit of defense, man. I mean, I, there are two different kinds of play in teams that I've seen over the course of the last couple of years, since this tournament has been incepted. You have teams like the Lakers and the Hawks, like very talented teams that for whatever reason are unserious all regular season and end up falling down there and have to fight their way out. And then you get the young try hard team that's kind of out kicking their coverage and their talent to uh, you know a team that should be in the lottery that just plays so incredibly hard every night and they just scratch and claw their way there that's like a team like the pelicans right well the hawks spent all season long bsing around on the defensive end of the floor even though the defense is what carried them in the postseason last year everyone thinks about trey young don't get me wrong trey young's a great player who made a lot of great plays in big moments in last year's playoff run but it was their commitment to the defensive end i know clint capella wasn't there tonight but just of all the teams I watched this weekend, they were by far the sloppiest in their defensive rotations. You're going to give up drives. Every team gives up drives. Yes, the Hawks are going to give up more drives because Trey Young is not a great defender. Bogdanovich is not a great defender. Gallinari is not a great defender. You're going to give up more drives, but they looked like a uh, like a pickup basketball team or a men's league team rotating around on the black, back end. They looked sloppy. They just looked like an unserious team. And guess what's going to happen when you're an unserious team running into that Miami Heat squad that's out for blood, who struggled a little bit over the course of the last month and is trying to re-instill a bunch of those habits, well, you're going to get your butt kicked, and that's what happens. Mm -hmm. So they've got, to get, they, they've got to get some semblance of a functional defensive scheme working or they're going to get absolutely railroaded in this series. So from the Heat perspective, obviously, they did a phenomenal job on Trey Young, and he had really just a brutal night, and he was obviously a major focal point for them. So what did you think of how they approached that matchup and going forward do you think that they stick with how they approached game one? Do you think that they have to mix up at all how they cover Trey? Just what's your perspective for the Heat on that matchup? I loved their approach. I like Trey Young is the head of the snake. You got to cut the head of the snake off. You're mm -hmm. seeing really quickly in this playoff run, just in this first weekend, and you're going to continue to see it. There are players that are kind of made for this, and there are players that aren't. And Trey Young is one of the guys who's made for this. But like you're seeing Danilo Gallinari struggle to create shots in this tough physical playoff environment against Miami's defense. Bogdanovich is a guy who's had a lot of success in regular seasons over the years as a as a secondary shot creator, a guy who can run bench lineups and run primary pick and roll uh, side actions, you know, to start possessions for bad teams in the dregs of the regular season or helping the Hawks in the dregs of the regular season. But it's harder at this level. And you're seeing what the Heat are doing is they're sending all their defensive attention towards Trey Young and giving him a nightmare night. 
and they're be, they're looking at mm-hmm. uh, a Boyan Bogdanovich and they're looking at Gallo and they're like, hey, beat us. Let me see if you can uh, let me see if you can create a shot for yourself off the dribble. And they just can't. But uh, Bogdanovich had a nightmare game. I think he was 0 for 8. So really smart strategy for Miami. I would keep hounding Trey Young as much as you can. If he has a disaster series, this thing's going to be over in four games. All right. Let's move on to Suns Pelicans, where the Suns ended up winning 110-99. They were suffocating defensively in the first half, up big, and then the Pelicans had a bit of a mini comeback. But obviously, New Orleans a bit outmatched here in terms of record and probably personnel on paper. But after game one, what would Coach Jason have them adjust for the rest of this series? So... Especially early in the game, I thought the Pelicans really struggled with the interior shot blocking presences of the Suns. DeAndre Ayton and JaVale McGee both did an amazing job. JaVale McGee was awesome. That dude is like, that dude was such a klutz for the first half of his career and was the butt of every joke. And he went to Golden State, learned how to become a winning contributor, did it again for the Lakers. He was actually a really good backup center for the Nuggets, and now he's doing it for the Suns. I love that dude. I love his game. He was awesome. The The Pelicans, you know, you have two approaches there. You can continue trying to shoot over the really tall guy that's going to block all your shots or make you throw up janky stuff that you're not going to make, or you can try to make them pay for overhelping. And the easiest way, it's like, like I, we're going to talk about the Bulls and the Bucks here shortly. You know, Nikola Vucevic took 10 threes today. That's what you got to do. If they're going to have Brooke Lopez mm-hmm. sit under the damn basket all game long, you got to take those shots. Did he miss them? Yeah, and I hope he's going to have to find a way to make them. But you got to do the same thing with Jonas Valanciunas. You got to do more pick and pop. The pick and pop is the perfect counter to a drop coverage because in a drop coverage, you're going to have a guy like DeAndre Ayton or JaVale McGee who's going to put himself between the ball handler and the rim. And then you have the guard chasing over the top of the screen. So you have basically two players staying with the ball handler. It just happens to work when there's a guy rolling to the rim because usually the bigger athletic bigs can kind of split the difference between those two. But if your screener pops to the three-point line, he's wide open every single time. And the Bulls, to their credit, did that with Nikola Vucevic. The the Pelicans have to do more of that with Valanciunas. I know he has a really slow release. I know he doesn't like to take a ton of threes, but you're either going to sit there and try to finish over shot blocking all night long, or you can give Jonas Valanciunas wide open threes, and I like that a little bit better. At the very least, you might be able to soften up that interior defense and get some easier shots. All right, from the Suns' perspective, obviously a whole lot went right, but it did seem like kind of the one area that they were outmatched was on the glass. They were minus 7 on the offensive boards, minus 11 overall, and the Pelicans were really just a great rebounding team this whole year. So is that like the biggest point of concern for you in this matchup, if anything, and how do the Suns go about, you know, trying to negate that advantage? Yeah, I mean, if I'm I'm Monty Williams, I'm going in there and I'm ripping them a new one for not boxing out. I think Jonas, I what did uh, last I checked, Jonas Valanciunas had nine offensive rebounds. I'm not sure how many he finished with, but that's just a completely insane number. You'd think after like four, there'd be a timeout where you're screaming at your guys, and maybe that did happen. But to be clear, this is all just for fun. Like the Suns are in absolute control of this series. <laughs> Monty Williams is not sweating the slightest bit. They have too much talent. This is a bad matchup for the Pelicans as well in terms of the way they like to play. It's It's not... The, the Pelicans have no chance, but if I'm Monty Williams and I'm looking for something to try to keep my guys engaged, I'm I'm just just dialing in on the box outs. That's got to be the, the biggest adjustment moving forward. 
All right, Bulls-Bucks last game of the day here for us. Was a pretty tight one down to the finish after the Bucks were up a little bit more convincingly early. Ends up being a 93-86 Milwaukee win. So what would Coach Jason point at to the Bulls and say, this is what you guys need to adjust and fix going forward? So same concept as what we were talking about with the Pelicans. The Bucks did what they've been doing all season, overplaying the paint. Yeah, you know, Giannis kind of helping out of the weak side. Brooke Lopez hanging out around the basket as much as he possibly can. The And I, I complained coming into this series that I was worried about the Bulls because they don't shoot enough threes. They attempt right around like 28 threes per game in the regular season, which was dead last in the NBA. And the Bucks give up the most threes in the NBA. Wide open threes, that is. They give up over 20 wide open threes every single game in the regular season, which was by far the most in the league. So I was concerned that the Bulls wouldn't be able to make the Bucks pay the way that they would need to. The weird part is, is they took 37 threes tonight. To their credit, they took some really good ones in that pick and pop type of scenario with Nikola Vucevic. Not just in pick and pop, but also they had Vucevic when he was not involved in the action action spot up at the three-point line. Same idea, like at least make Milwaukee pay by giving up a wide open shot if they're going to overplay the paint. The problem was, of those 37 threes they took, way too many of them were pull-up threes. And this is on both Levine and DeMar, uh, DeMar DeRozan. I thought both of them struggled with kind of understanding how to put their imprint on the game offensively, when to be aggressive as scorers, and when to be more willing to playmake. If you're going to beat the Bucks, you have to have a boatload more catch-and-shoot threes on the weak side. And I'm not just talking about the stuff with Nikola Vucevic. DeMar DeRozan and, and Zach Levine have to be more willing to kick out to guys in the corner. I'm really curious to look at this one a little bit more in the tape because, again, they took 37, but from what I could tell, a lot of the ones they were taking were difficult, contested threes, not the kind of threes that you need in order to make this Bucks defense pay. So my my biggest takeaway moving forward if I'm uh, if I'm the Bulls is try to find a way to declutter the paint by just spamming pick and pop with Nikola Vucevic. And if you get into the lane and there's help, make the kick out every time. Trust your shot quality. Trust the fact mm-hmm. that over the course of the series, even if you miss them in one game, you'll make these really good shots. Don't do what DeMar DeRozan and Zach Levine did and just keep trying to slam your head into the brick wall taking impossible shots because all you're going to do is keep missing and now your confidence is going to waver. You, like that, that, That's going to be the, the... If they make those reads... You'll soften the defense to the point where now you can get higher quality shots and then you can get going, if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. And I think you make a great point just about the Bulls' willingness to shoot threes because you're watching the Bucks drop pick and roll every time and DeRozan's just long two, long two. And obviously, you can't hate on the guy because he does make the shots about as efficiently as anybody in basketball, but they just were not falling today, obviously. So he's earned himself a reputation as a guy who just doesn't live up to expectations in the playoffs. Do you think that there's anything to that with him? There is. I mean, playoff basketball is just really hard, man. Like, look at what happened to Kevin Durant tonight. Like, if it can happen to Kevin freaking Durant, Mm -hmm. then, like, all these guys are dealing with similar similar coverages. Like, when you're game planning for the Bulls, DeMar DeRozan's 1A on on your scouting report. You know what I mean? And so... It, you know, there's there's 
a type of shot that you can get regularly in the NBA regular season that you can't get in the in the playoffs. We were talking about like you know DeRozan getting to those pull up twos against drop coverage or in isolations like post up turnarounds. They're just a little tougher now. I, I wouldn't even say that. They're a lot tougher. You know, there's this weird culture around the NBA. People pretend like they don't play defense in the regular season. They do, but like there's a difference between like good effort in the regular season and like okay to sloppy effort in the regular season. In the playoffs, it's like any mix of really good effort to like crazy, desperate, psychotic, like fighting for our lives effort. So like every possession mm -hmm. just has this extra level of intensity. I thought that uh, in particular, the Bucs did a really nice job of disrupting DeMar DeRozan's base, kind of making him feel like he was crowded. And you could almost see, I don't know if you noticed this, Carson, but like there was a lack of smoothness to DeMar's pull-ups. Mm -hmm. He looked like he was pressing a little bit, a little bit stressed, a little bit rushed, and a lot more like flailing. Like he, it, the, the, he just looked uncomfortable. And so the thing is, yeah. is like, I don't know that DeMar DeRozan because of his size. He's a decent size guy, but he's not a huge wing, right? He's six foot six and decently strong. He's not the kind of guy that's going to be routinely able to get great shots. Okay. Right. So it's going to come down to whether or not he can make tough shots. And even though he's very good at that over the course of his career, he just, for whatever reason, hasn't been able to make them in the postseason. So for the Bucks, obviously they pick up a win here, but it really did come down to it. And it came down to it on a day where, DeRozan is 6 of 25, Vooch is 9 of 27, Levine is 6 of 19. Like, none of the Bulls' big three shoot better than 33%. So, just given that, is there anything from this game that concerns you for Milwaukee, given the closeness and the fact that the Bulls' best guys really did struggle? I'm not concerned as it pertains to the Bucks' ability to win the series. But... Mm -hmm. I thought that Chicago demonstrated something that was an interesting conundrum for the Bucks today. So like, you know, traditionally the way teams do help defense is they'll like, it's, let's say Giannis is isolating on the left wing and there's a guy, a shooter in the strong side corner. Usually the guy guarding the shooter in the strong side corner stays glued to them because you never, most defense. Allstate wants to remind fans that mayhem is everywhere. Like at your pregame barbecue while you prep your meats. That grease trap you forgot to empty is prepping to smoke your porch, garage, and the car inside. And without the right home and auto insurance coverage, the cost to repair this could eat up your savings. So bundle home and auto with Allstate to save and get protected from mayhem like this. Bundled savings variant are not available in every state. Coverage is subject to policy terms and conditions. Warm weather brings many outdoor activities. Happy hours after work, weekend hikes, pool parties, and family barbecues. With all that time spent in the sun, we're often not thinking about what it's doing to our hair. Those rays can seriously affect your scalp and hair, making right now the perfect time to start taking Nutrafol to help keep your hair healthy this summer. Nutrafol is the number one dermatologist recommended hair growth supplement with over 1 million people seeing thicker, stronger, and faster growing hair with less shedding. Thinning hair is different for men and women, so a one-size-fits-all approach to hair growth doesn't cut it. Nutrafol has multiple formulas that are tailored to give your hair what it needs to grow based on your biology, life stage, and lifestyle factors. Physician formulated with drug-free ingredients, Nutrafol supports healthy hair growth from within by targeting key root causes of thinning, stress, hormones, environment, nutrition, lifestyle, and metabolism through whole body health. With Nutrafol, building a hair growth routine is simple. Purchase online, no prescription or doctor's visits required. 
Free shipping and automated deliveries ensure you'll never miss a day and you'll see results in three to six months. Get results you can run your fingers through. For a limited time, Nutrafol is offering our listeners $10 off your first month subscription and free shipping when you go to Nutrafol.com and enter the promo code HOOPS. That's H-O-O-P-S. Find out why over 4,500 healthcare professionals and stylists recommend Nutrafol for healthier hair. Nutrafol.com, spelled N U T. R-A-F-O-L dot com, promo code HOOPS, that's H-O-O-P-S. That's Nutrafol.com, promo code HOOPS. Angie's List is now Angie, the nation's largest home services marketplace. They're here to help homeowners get all their jobs done well. Angie has helped over 150 million homeowners care for their homes. Whatever your home project, big or small, indoor or outdoor, Come to Angie to connect with and hire skilled professionals to get the job done well. Something I've always been a big believer in. When you try to take projects on yourself, you usually don't know what you're doing. You usually end up making mistakes, and it can be a big headache. And so not only can a professional from Angie get the job done more efficiently, but they also are people that you can support within your community as local businesses. With over 200,000 pros in their network, Angie makes it easy to research, compare, and hire pros to ensure a job is done well. With 29 years of experience combined with new digital tools to simplify the process, Angie makes completing home projects easy. Consider Angie your hub for all your home improvement needs. They can help you find the best price for your project by comparing quotes from multiple pros in just a few taps or book services at an upfront price based on local data. Angie has cost guides that will tell you what others have paid for similar projects, both nationally and in your area. And the app is free and easy to use. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I.com or download the app today. Schemes never want to give up a, a strong side corner three. So usually the help just comes from the baseline from the weak side corner. And so a guy will beat someone off the dribble and they usually just have to deal with the help defender at their rim. Well, what Chicago did that I thought was really interesting is wherever... Giannis caught the ball, even if it was one pass away, guys were sitting in his driving lanes. And so, but they were kind of like splitting the difference. It was kind of like dare you to do, to make a decision kind of thing. Like you'd have Patrick Williams guarding Giannis, staring him right in the face and Giannis has his rhythm and he's kind of trying to figure out whether he's attacking, but there's Alex Caruso sitting right in the driving lane to the left. And, you know, there's Derek Jones Jr. sitting right in the driving lane to the right. And it's like, okay, even if I beat Patrick Williams, I'm just running right into another defender. But at the same time, Alex Crusoe's not doubling. So, like, if I throw this pass to the strong side corner, like, it's a three, but it's going to be a, a slightly contested three. Like, Alex is going to close out. And so it kind of flustered the Bucks' offense. Now, Bucks fans will probably tell you it's rust. It's we haven't played in a week. It's, you know, game one jitters, all that kind of stuff. I looked at it more as a really, really smart scheme from Chicago to dare Milwaukee to make easy single pass reads to one pass away shooters to take lightly contested threes. And the, I, uh, I can't remember the exact number, but the Bucks shot in the low 20% from three today. That whole, that whole dynamic kind of psyched him out. The obvious adjustment there is you got to make sure Chris Middleton's one of those guys that one that's one pass away. Maybe Pat Connaughton is the other. And then you got to look at Chris and you got to be like, look, man, when they do this, I'm hitting you. You've got to shoot it. You've got to find a way, just like we were talking about with the Pelicans and with the Bulls earlier, you got to find a way to loosen that defense. And the only way to do it is to demonstrate that you are willing to make them pay for it. And way too frequently in this game, they would drive into that traffic and cause problems. So first of all, credit to the Bulls. They defended like crazy. That was a really, really impressive performance. 
but the Bucks are going to have to figure out how to make the Bulls pay for just digging into Giannis's driving lanes all night long. All right, well, that's all I got for now, Jason. I'll be back in a sec. We'll look forward to the other four playoff series, but great insight from Coach Jason there. Love that. <laughs> all right, man, we will see you soon. All right, so I wanted to talk about this Kyrie Irving quote for just a minute because this is, again, like a, there's kind of like a, um, I don't know if rebellion's the right word, like a a movement among NBA players on a couple of different fronts, kind of anti-media and kind of anti-fans. And it, as is always the case, like everything, the sentiment I 100% agree with. I actually really, really love what my colleague Draymond Green's been doing, talking about NBA media and their obsession with drama and the way that they're, they aren't held accountable. I'm uh, like 100% in agreement there. Like he was, he, I thought Draymond Green said such a cool thing when he went on that podcast with Evan Turner, Evan Turner and Andre Iguodala the other day. He's like, the game of basketball is beautiful. Like, let's talk about this beautiful game of basketball. And I 100% agree with him there. Well, one of the other movements that these players have been getting behind is this anti-fan movement. And I... This problem has been around forever. Fans have been heckling forever. And they heckle at every level of every sport of all time. I'll never forget playing an NAIA basketball and standing to throw an inbounds pass and having uh, – I, I played at a school in Utah. I was not Mormon. Played at a school in Utah. And I had all the 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 fans right behind my ear screaming like anti-Mormon jokes, like horrible, horrible things right into my ear. I had that happen to me dozens of times, various different capacities when I was playing in college. It happens at every level of the sport. Even the players say horrible things to each other at times. It's kind of just like the weird nature of, of competitiveness, right? And, you know, uh, but at the same time, like it doesn't make it right that people behave that way, but players are bothered by it. So before we go any further, I want to read the Kyrie quote. So after the game, and you guys saw it, it looked like in the video, it looked like some fans were heckling him from behind where he was inbounding, and it looked like he may or may not have flipped him off behind his head. At least I thought that might have been what happened. I'm not sure if anybody actually solidified that or not. But the quote from Kyrie, he says, quote, when people start yelling pussy and bitch and fuck you, there's only so much you can take as a competitor. Nah, fuck that. That's the playoffs. It is what it is. I know what to expect in here, and I'm ready to give the same energy back to them, end quote. And I get that. I like, I've just like anybody else who's ever dealt with heckling or any, anytime anybody, all of you just in your day to day life, anytime you're ever in a setting where someone says something rude to you, whether it's like a, a weird dude in a retail setting who like is in customer service, who treats you poorly, or you're at a bar and you're having a drink and some guy bumps into you and doesn't say, I'm sorry, or whatever it is like, you're going to run into inconsiderate and people that uh, that are rude and, and, and mean and offensive all the time in your life. But you not doing that is what separates you from those people. Like, the reality is, is if we allow 20,000 people into an arena, we're probably going to get some scumbags in there. You know, like, there's going to be some trash human beings in there that don't have a filter, that are awful that are, you know, bigots that are, that are insensitive, that are whatever it is, you're going to get horrible human beings that are going to interact with you in every phase of life, but especially in a competitive environment in, on a basketball court. And my thing is like, I'm not saying it's easy to deal with. I sympathize with the sentiment, but Kyrie, you not saying shit back to them, you not flipping them off. That's what separates you from them. 
And like, and I understand we're in this, like, there's kind of like this new ideology that goes around where it's like, we always have to support what everybody, you know, uh, uh, like wants to to say or do, but it's like, at the same time, like there's gotta be a line somewhere. And like, to me, the line is like, if somebody's rude to me, I don't have to be rude back to them. I can be above that. And then guess what happens? Everyone's going to remember all the things that the horrible things that the fans said to you, and they're going to have your back anyway, after the fact. It, 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 this makes you the story in a wrong way. And, and, I, and I just disagree w- with the approach. And like, I get like, as far there's been this other kind of dynamic here where NBA players in particular want to uh, make it seem like their job has all these massive downsides. Like you get heckled. You have to deal with media criticism. The traveling is tough. You have to be away from your family for a long time. I get all of that. But every single job has pros and cons for various reasons. I worked in real estate for a half decade before this. And like, there was great things. I was my own boss. I got to set my own schedule. It was it freed me up to be able to do things like make a podcast and, and coach high school basketball and do all these things. It was great. But there were also downsides. Like I would sometimes be at dinner with my wife and a phone call would come in that I absolutely had to take. Because in real estate, you're on 24 seven. If you're, if the deal that you're working has some urgent need that you have to cater to, you've got to hop in and you've got to do something. And so, and and, and again, like there are some amazing perks for NBA players. One of the downsides is, is you have to play basketball in front of 20,000 people. And sometimes there's scumbags in those 20,000 people. They say horrible things to you and you might have to turn the other cheek. You might have to look the other way. That's, that's just the, that's the reality of it. So my thing is like, I'm, I sympathize with Kyrie, but like, man, it's a bad look for you to stoop to their level. Show me, show us, show all of us why you're different, why you're better than the scumbag behind you who called you a bitch in the second row. You know what I'm saying? Like that, that's the kind of a, a ideology that I don't understand. And it, and it seems to be kind of like boiling over from NBA players right now. And I'd be, I'd be really curious to hear from older players in previous generations, because I would imagine it might've been even worse back then. <laughs> you know what I mean? So I just, I, I they've got to, you got, this is the part of the deal, man. And you've just got to, you just got to take it in stride. I, I think it's, it doesn't make it easy. I understand. We've all been there where someone's saying something to you and you'd like to lash out physically, or you'd like to, to turn around and cuss them out or you'd like, but g- g- what did you guys all do in those situations? For the most part, we've all cracked before I've cracked before, but what do you usually do? Usually go privately to yourself. You got screw that guy. And then you just walk away, you know, that cause, cause you're better than him, that you're not the kind of person who behaves that way. And so you're above that fray and you separate yourself from it as much as you can. That's all I had on that front. I wanted to bring Carson back on. We're going to play a game about some of my predictions from playoff series. Yeah. Just real quick before we get into that, Jason, how do you think the fact that this happened in Boston were obviously Kyrie played and there was the whole kind of ugly breakup there factors into all of this and his reaction. Obviously, obviously it exacerbates the, the, the Mm -hmm. heckling. It obviously makes it harder, but like, this is where it's like, it's, it's like a bad breakup. Like you, you lashing out in return makes it seem that you have unresolved feelings about it. You know, like Mm -hmm. here's the reality of what happened with Kyrie in Boston. 
he made a promise that he was coming back. Literally got on the microphone and said he was going to sign. In, uh, uh, correct me if I'm wrong on this, Carson, but I'm pretty sure he grabbed the microphone at one point in front of the entire stadium and was like, I'm signing the extension this summer. <laughs> like, like the dude he did. made a promise. <laughs> he didn't keep he didn't keep it. He made a he made a he made a commercial for Nike about his dad playing for the Celtics at one point or trying out for the Celtics at one point. And how he wants his rap his uh, jersey to hang in the rafters. So like, yeah, dude, you backed out of a commitment, which is fine. Like I get it, and I don't blame him for leaving Boston. But like, all you're doing by playing into this back and forth with the fans is making it seem like you have your own regrets about this whole situation. Like, play it cool, man. Like, play it cool. <laughs> yeah, I'm with you there. But playing it cool, that's not really. Kyrie's brand you know that's not exactly no, what he not. does <laughs> but all right like you said we are going to play a game it's called hold or bail so we're going to look back on some of your predictions for the remaining four series that we haven't touched on today and you're going to tell me if you're sticking with your original prediction or if maybe you want to jump ship and change something up so we're going to start with Raptors Sixers you took Toronto in six to win the series they lost game one by 20 are you holding or are you bailing here I'm holding. Um, I feel like the Raptors have to win one of these first two games, and game one didn't mm -hmm. look good. But I did a deep dive into the film this morning, and I bet you Nick Nurse had a full-blown conniption fit when he went back and watched the film. There was this weird dynamic in that game where the Sixers were playing like the underdog. And I don't know if it was all of the people picking the Raptors. I don't know if it's James Harden sick of getting slandered. I don't know if it was just Raptors laziness or them buying into their own hype a little bit. But the Raptors had embarrassing effort in that first quarter. The amount of the amount of uh, uh, times that they just got simply beat down the floor in transition because they weren't sprinting back. The sloppiness on the defensive end with their with their switches and their rotations and and uh just just in general it felt to me like the Raptors played one of their worst potential basketball games we talk a lot about like a punch that the team brings to the table their best punch and their worst punch and the the Sixers came out and they were like this is game one everyone thinks the Raptors are going to win we're throwing our best punch and the Raptors were just sloppy they missed a ton of box outs they didn't rebound well it was just an, utter, an utterly disastrous performance from Toronto. And when you are the less talented team, when you are the team that is vying for an upset, you can't be the team that loses the effort and focus areas of the game. You, right. ha you have to be the team that dominates those areas, and it's the other team's talent that keeps them close. Now, this in all of these situations where the coach is the advantage where the brain is the advantage. Kind of like when you used to watch LeBron series like as the series progresses, the smarter teams have the advantage. I do think Toronto's the smarter team. I think their biggest and best moments in the series will come later in the series, but man, like for a team that's vying for an upset for them to come out in game one, that flat was really disappointing. And if they do lose game two, I'm off the ship. But for right now I'm holding, I expect a much better effort from the Raptors in game two and I hope that that's the one that they steal to get their upset bid on the right track. So obviously you mentioned them losing the effort battle there. Is there any part of you just watching the offensive firepower and the shot creation from Philly's top four guys who combined for 105 points in this game compared to Toronto where sometimes the offense doesn't come quite as easily? 
do you worry at all about them just making up that deficit in terms of just like that pure lead shot creation and shot making ability? If they guard the way they did in this game, then then they're not going to be able to overcome it. <laughs> um, and what I, I'm not just talking about the effort stuff. Like there was some strategy things that I totally disagree with. Like if you guys remember, we did a video on Harden and Bead after their first three games uh, after the Harden trade. And what was my big takeaway at the end? Make Harden beat you. Like there's way too much obsession with these coaches and Nick Nurse is the latest where it's like, we're paranoid about James Harden. And we're, when he has the ball, we're doing all of this overhelping and all of the sending a third defender into the action and, and doing all this yeah. stuff. And it's like, make Harden beat you. I, I, I railed out some stats uh, uh, last or earlier this, this past week where I, I showed you guys like, uh, James Harden is finishing at the rim half as often as he did in 2018. He's making pull-up jump shots 8% less often as he did. or uh, He's 32% this year. He's 40% in his MVP season, so he's not shooting well pull-ups. He uh, mm -hmm. is relying on free throws for almost 40% of his offense. He's just nowhere near as good as he was when he was at his peak. And right. like I would double like absolute crazy on every Embiid action. There's nothing they can mm -hmm. do with the guy. You cannot let that guy be in single coverage. I'm 100% on Nick Nurse's aggression in that specific setting. But when James Harden has the ball, they kept sending this third defender over, and James Harden is so damn smart, he's just working his yeah. way slowly, methodically into the lane and making easy kickouts to really good players on the back end. And so the way that I would do that if I was them, and they did it a handful of times in this game, and when they did it, usually worked. Just keep it two-on-two two in the Harden and Embiid pick and roll. Switch it, even if you're putting Fred Van Vliet on Embiid, because Embiid then has to roll back to the post in order to fight for position. And in that time, you can set up your post-up double. Harden will have to mm -hmm. pull the ball out to make his post entry, or maybe he'll do something stupid and isolate against the big man that he gets switched onto. But my main takeaway is... When Harden has the ball, single coverage on Harden. When Embiid has the ball, throw the kitchen sink. Make this series about James Harden trying to do what he did in 2018, even though he's not physically capable of doing it anymore. That would be my entire approach if I was Toronto. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. I think that Harden has made it very clear that he's more comfortable facilitating first at this point. And like, he does still have that control of the game. But like you said, the shot making just isn't there. I think his last nine games, he's around 18 a night on like 35% from the field. Like he's just struggling to create those quality looks and he's struggling to hit the looks that he does get. So I think that you are right on the money there. All right. You took the Mavs over the jazz in seven. The Mavs lost game one by six. There was no Luca. It's now looking like Luka is unlikely to play in game two. Are you holding or bailing on this one, Jason? I'm getting nervous. Um, I was hoping, because I picked Mavericks in seven, because I was hoping that Luka would come back by game three. just seemed like mm -hmm. it would make the most sense. Usually, I haven't looked at the schedule, but usually in the first round, because they have so many games, they'll space out an extra day between games two and game three, or between game one and game two. Right. But I was sitting there thinking, like, if you give the Jazz, like, if, if Luca was healthy, I would have picked the Jazz to win or the, the Mavericks to win the series in five games. I'm a huge mm -hmm. believer in Dallas. I think they're specifically equipped to shut Utah down on a bunch of different fronts. They're one of my dark horse teams to win the title. I was so high on them. I was so bummed out by that stupid Luka Doncic calf injury. And this kind of throws a wrench into all of that. What scares me 
is I think Dallas played one of their best defensive games that they've ever played this season in game one. Just stifling competitively on the defense, uh, on uh, on the perimeter, sitting in a defensive stance, taking away easy driving lanes. The only success Utah was really having was attack, attacking Davis Bertans with either Donovan Mitchell or with Boyan Bogdanovich. They were not getting and they were not getting easy shots against the Mavericks, but they just couldn't score. And I've been so high on Dal on on Spencer Dinwiddie as a third creator and Jalen Brunson as a backup creator. But with the slotting, when those two guys get slot uh, get slotted up into the first and second creation roles, they're just not as good, and they can't create enough shots. And so I'm definitely wavering on this one. I would say that I would I would switch my pick to the Jazz if Luca wasn't back in Game Three. But for right now, through Game One, I'm going to hold for now. All right, yeah, it is such a bummer with Luca. Obviously, just entirely changed the dynamics of the series in every way all right warriors you took in five over the nuggets and they were very convincing in game one even bringing steph off the bench with a minutes restriction holding or bailing here i'm holding um i do think the nuggets will get one at home they have enough advantages, and this is an older core for the Warriors, so they're susceptible to things like mailing in a defensive effort on the road or something like that. Overall, though, the Warriors, they're going to run away with this thing. What mm-hmm. an awesome, perfect first-round series for them. You, Steph Curry, just because he's an incredible leader, I've said many times he's the best leader in the NBA, decides to come off the bench because Jordan Poole has been killing everybody for like a couple of months. And Steph Curry's like, I don't want to disrupt Jordan Poole's rhythm, and I don't want mm-hmm. to send Klay Thompson to the bench. I'll sit, th- sit on the bench. And Jordan Poole, of course, is incredible. Again, that kid, I'll tell you, I, I always wonder if, if kids that play alongside stars will absorb their greatness in some capacity. And Jordan yeah. Poole appears to have been that guy with Steph because he's one of the few guys in the league now that coming off of ball screens, you almost have to devote similar amounts of attention to him. And I've been super impressed with him. But what a perfect first-round series for the Warriors to just get their feet wet. And uh, I, t- I told you guys earlier, I don't expect Draymond Green to really fully regain, uh, regain his, his athletic form until the second round. This is a nice low-stress series for him to work his way back into shape. Steph Curry to slowly work his way through his minutes restriction and eventually work his way back into the starting lineup. This could this could not have broken better for the Warriors than it did. Yeah, and it does feel like there's just a personnel mismatch. Like I think the Warriors clearly have five of the top seven guys in this series, and absolutely, you know, Jokic can only do so much. Like the Warriors are just fundamentally a much better basketball team. All right, you took the Grizzlies to beat the T Wolves in six. Minnesota came in and. Stole game one. Are you holding or bailing here, Jason? So I specifically picked the Grizzlies in six because I thought this series would be a lot more competitive than people realized. We talked earlier about how the uh, Sixers played like the underdog and won in a lot of the effort and focus areas of the game. Well, the same thing happened to Memphis tonight. They came in confident, we're the favorite. We've been whooping everybody's ass all year. Nobody can beat us at home. We beat you and we talk shit about it. And meanwhile, here comes Minnesota. And they're like, their heart and soul is Patrick Beverly. 
who is literally Mr. Like, like Patrick Beverly is the kind of guy who will walk into that arena and be like, we are the favorite to win this series. We are the, we are supposed to be here. We are supposed to win this. And, and so I, I wasn't surprised at all that Minnesota came in and punched him in the mouth. And as I've said on many different occasions, they have real advantages here. Okay. One of Memphis's big advantages is they're big and athletic on the wings. Well, guess who else has big athletic wings? Minnesota does. You know, obviously, Minnesota, uh, Memphis has a huge mismatch problem. Nobody can guard John Morant at the point of attack. They can't keep him from getting to the paint, at least. Well, guess what? Nobody on Memphis can guard Carl Anthony Towns. And the Steven Adams thing is an utter disaster. As is always the case, coaches stick with their traditional scheme to start series before they adapt. Adams was an, an absolute disaster. He got killed in transition. He couldn't guard Carl Anthony Towns in, in isolation situations. He was getting beat off the dribble a lot. Every time Anthony Edwards had the ball and was coming off those Carl Towns ball screens, Adams was in a drop coverage right, you know, down by the free throw line. Anthony Edwards made eight pull-up jump shots in that game. A huge part of that was Steven Adams in drop coverage. I love Steven Adams, one of my favorite players in the NBA. I've been preaching about how these plotting bigs, these slow traditional bigs are becoming useless in the modern NBA. He was useless last night. And what you're going to see is eventually they're going to send him to the bench. And when they do, I think that's when things kind of take off for Memphis in the series. Jaron Jackson Jr. can absolutely play the five. He's the only guy that has a decent chance of staying in front of Carl Towns on the perimeter. That's when I think this series will turn back in Memphis's favor. They did not play hard enough in game one. I still think this is going to be very competitive throughout, but I think Memphis is going to end up stealing it and or, uh, finishing them off in six. So I'm, so I'm holding on all four series as Carson, but I will say I like that it. after game one, I've never missed or overreact to game one. So if we play the same game later on, I think there's a much better chance that I would waver on one of my picks. You know, I think that's the right tendency. People are generally overreactionary, and I do think it's better to stick with your gut. Just real quick, is there a world with Ant where, like, if that pull-up jumper just keeps falling through this series, that he is, like, the best guy on the floor? That's a good question. Um, John Murray had a really bad game one. And uh, he got to the free throw line a ton early. Didn't get as many calls later in the game. He, in the fourth quarter especially, I thought he forced a lot in the paint. And kind of like we've been talking about with all these other series, take the easy shot quality that is there. Make the kickouts to the wide open shooters on the on the wing. Memphis was 23rd in three-pointers attempted and 23rd in three-pointers made this year in the entire NBA. It's because they're a team that when they get into the paint and help comes over at the rim... John Morant and Dylan Brooks and all these guys, Tyus Jones, they go to the floater. They shoot out of the mid-range. And what you're seeing is there's more congestion in there than ever. Even the floaters and mid-range shots aren't really all that open. You got to make the kickouts. There were many, many occasions in that fourth quarter where John Morant got into the paint and had an opportunity to make a kickout, but instead just was doing what he did all game, which was jump into the throng of bodies and flail around and throw something up and hope for the best. And it worked for him early in the game because he got 20 free throws, but he wasn't able to make those easier reads. And as a result, didn't get the calls late in the game and and went south on it. So it's interesting because Anthony Edwards, he he made eight pull-up jump shots last night. He made four pull-up jump shots in the play-in game, over 50% both nights. There were 60 players in the NBA this year that attempted 
at least five pull-up jump shots per game this year. And Anthony Edwards was dead last in field goal percentage. Now, some of that was he, ta- he takes a lot of threes with his pull-up shots, but he was dead last out of 60 players who attempted at least 50 in field goal percentage. So a huge part of this is like he's shooting well right now. So do I think that Anthony Edwards could be the best player in the series? Probably not because this is the outlier. My guess is there will be a few games in this series where Ant is gunning for with his pull-up jump shot and the shots don't go in. So it could go the other way on him. But also sometimes guys take leaps and suddenly they start making shots and then they never stop making shots. So if this is what Ant is and he's rounding out into a good pull-up jump shooter, then then yeah, absolutely. He has that capability. He I did this whole rant about him last night. He's a sight to behold driving to the basket. He's like the definition of the modern power two guard, just built like a linebacker. When he gets a straight line drive, guys just bounce off of him. Really, really impressed by him. But I do think Jaw is the best player in the series. I think he'll show it as things go on. And I think Memphis will end up closing it out in six. All right, guys, that is all I have for tonight. As always, I appreciate your support. We will be back tomorrow night, right after the last game of the night to break down all of day three of this NBA playoff run. As always, I appreciate your support and we'll see you tomorrow. The volume. Allstate wants to remind fans that mayhem is everywhere. Like at your pregame barbecue. While you prep your meats, that grease trap you forgot to empty is prepping to smoke your porch, garage, and the car inside. And without the right home and auto insurance coverage, the cost to repair this could eat up your savings. So bundle home and auto with Allstate to save and get protected from mayhem like this. Bundled savings variant are not available in every state. Coverage is subject to policy terms and conditions. Kevin Hart here. This basketball season, Chase Freedom Unlimited is helping me cash back on everything. Even the sound system that auto-tunes the game. Curry from way downtown. Defense. Will the owner of a red sedan please visit guest services? Bet you've never heard cash back and sound like that. Cash back like a pro with Chase Freedom Unlimited. Chase, make more of what's yours. Restrictions and limitations apply. Cards are issued by JPMorgan Chase Bank and a member FDIC. Hey, guys. Back at the playground again, huh? Yep. You know what this playground could use? A wine country. Heck, yeah. And some waves. So we could go surfing. Oh, yeah. <laughs> ah, love that. A redwood forest would be cool. I'm in. Ah, ski slopes. Let's do it. Um, can a girl go shopping? Yeah, Wait, did we just invent California? Discover why California is the ultimate playground at visitcalifornia.com.